Hi, and welcome back to the Ethics Lab podcast. I'm Dr. George Sakaritis, and I'm here with Dr. Greg Peterson. Uh, we are in the fourth installment. How are you doing today, Greg? I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm keeping warm. We are at the end of a cold snap here, which probably many of our listeners have experienced as well. And having hit minus 30, we are now progressing quickly to the other end of the spectrum, and we can't be happier. Yeah, and that's minus 30 Fahrenheit, and that's not windchill. That is literally, it was like minus 53 windchill, something like that. That's right. But fortunately, we got an interesting podcast for you today. So find yourself some hot chocolate, and uh, we will warm you up with some interesting thoughts on, on ethics and technology. So our article today is from the Wall Street Journal that we're referencing, and the title is White Collar Robots Are Coming for Your Jobs. That's right. And so you, you can stay warm because you won't have a job anymore after a robot takes your job. Uh, maybe that's a little too much. Anyway, White Collar Robots Are Coming for Jobs is our title of our article. Uh, this is Wall Street Journal, January 31st, um, online edition. And the gist of the article is that you know a lot of companies now are introducing artificially intelligent kind of customer service. So you'll see a three-dimensional avatar, and you'll be actually responded to by what is essentially a robot, what it's AI, not physical robot. So do you remember this a few years ago, Greg? Did you, did you, have any, did you belong to any of these companies that introduced any of these uh, robot? Well, I didn't work for a company that had robotic customer service, but I once upon a time worked customer service. So I'm familiar with this sort of thing. And of course, all of us, I think, have by this time talked to artificial intelligence systems whenever we find we have trouble with our credit card company or cable TV, anything that involves forcing us to talk to uh, someone on the phone, but now increasingly it turns out that someone's not a someone, it's often enough a something. Yeah, well, as I was reading this article, I recognized uh, one of the the robot names. I think it was, it was Emily or something like this that one of my credit card companies actually introduced a couple years ago, and then it kind of disappeared from at least their, their introductory language on it. But we can maybe come back to that in a little bit. Let me just uh, get to the heart of the article. So there's this artificial intelligence named Amelia, works for a Swedish bank. And the idea is that this artificially intelligent customer service rep will answer your questions faster and more efficiently than a human would. And so the numbers they give are, it'll drop call time from 4.6 minutes to 4.2 minutes, which may not seem like a lot, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. And there is this form of artificial intelligence called machine learning. And there's another article we looked at too, dealt with this. But the, the artificial intelligence actually will adapt to the call situation. So there are situations where someone might call in and the artificial intelligence can't handle it, but they will listen in as a human handles it and then adapt for the next time that there is a call. So the, the intelligence is continually adapting and actually becoming more efficient at answering your questions. And it reacts to the emotional state of the person calling. It actually... Um, can adapt its facial expressions because you're seeing this three-dimensional avatar. So you get the feeling that this is a, a real human or a real being that actually is 
concerned about what you are concerned about. And so the real crux of this article, or the, the, the big point here, is that this is going to affect jobs, and it's going to affect jobs moving forward, because there are certain jobs within this industry or this sector that will be eliminated. So the way the article presents it is they'll eliminate maybe jobs, but not the occupation itself. So there will still be need for people in these fields, but they will be less just like the example they give is that tractors replace some farm chores. Obviously, people are still farmers, but farming is done much differently. And so the idea is that this will revolutionize this industry. And that 16% of U.S. jobs might be automated in the next 10 years in reaction to this. So I think what I'd like us to talk about today and what we've been discussing is how, what are the ethical questions that arise from this? I mean, we have some issues with artificial intelligence, economics, and maybe just how this affects people personal level. Well, as a, a starting point, one thing that's, that's very interesting, certainly to the, to the philosopher, but also to the, to the engineers who work on this sort of thing, these sorts of developments, which are now occurring at a very rapid pace, in one sense, they represent a kind of a holy grail, if you like, for at least a version of artificial intelligence research. So there's this, there's, there's this classic thought experiment developed by the, many would say, the father of, of computer science, Alan Turing, known as the Turing test. And so the Turing test basically is something like this, that you imagine a person who's in conversations via, so Turing was imagining a teletype, so now we might think of instant messaging, but the person's engaged in two conversations, one with a computer and one with a human being. And so the question that Turing was posing was this, how do we know when a computer can be said to think? And what Turing said is we can know a computer thinks when that person can no longer tell which conversation is the computer's and which is the human being. And so now what we're finding, thanks to this new machine learning technology, among other things, is that maybe computers can't pass the Turing test, but they can do simple tasks that involve language and what at least a appears, and here's where uh, definitions become important, but at the very least appears to mimic thought if we're maybe still disinclined to say that they're actually thinking. So this is really a, a kind of technological kind of feat. Yeah, I, I think there's some broader questions here. Just, I mean, we accept the Turing test kind of as, as a standard, you know, test of machine intelligence. But I mean, there are critiques of the Turing test itself and the fact that it is possible maybe to pass the Turing test, but not actually have at least consciousness of some sort, which that's a whole nother thing, but intelligence. So a machine could kind of mimic intelligence, as you're saying, without actually having it. But if it's adapting to its circumstances, that's a form of learning. And it, it is one kind of marker of intelligence. So how would you look at that? The, like the adaptation aspect, I think the machine learning or the adaptation is what starts to move this into a, a more uncomfortable realm for many people. Right. So many uh, philosophers, uh, including myself on, on the great majority of days, but, but also many engineers and computer scientists would say that the Turing test is, is not a, a sufficient criteria 
for uh, what we think of as human intelligence or, or human thought. And so it is an interesting test, and it gets at probably some things, but, but not everything. One other feature of this technology, aside in the article, though, is interesting, because what sometimes people say is that what computers lack is emotion. And of course, one of the features of these avatars of the voice on a computer, so they have these sort of faces and they're mimicking facial expressions and they're mimicking emotions. So again, we'd probably say that the computer doesn't really have emotions. Emotion is a much more complex thing, but they're mimicking emotions. And this gets into the ethics of some of this little bit because emotions can serve to communicate real feelings, but they can also serve to manipulate, right? So if the computer is mimicking emotions, there's a sense in which it's trying to manipulate you a little bit to put you at ease, to make you comfortable in the transaction, which in this case involves not a person at all, but a computer. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, but I think we could actually bring that back to humans too. I mean, there maybe I'm speaking a little too broadly here, but I think there are plenty of people who mimic emotions in order to get a desired result, either to manipulate or just to get along because they don't have the emotional wherewithal to actually feel that sympathy or empathy toward a person. And so in a sense, they're also going through kind of a rigid set of motions. And so that may be a different issue, but I think it relates to what a machine might do. So is it beneficial? Like if I see a call center AI respond to me with um, with sadness because I'm sad, would I feel that that is something that is actually benefiting me? I feel like, oh, this this machine understands me, or would I feel manipulated? And I think that might differ according to the person or the quality of the AI itself. So this gets at the question of what do we want, right? So do we yes. want call setters, first of all, that have computers that are talking to us? So that's one kind of question. And then secondly, if we want that, do we want those computers to be friendly? And so, of course, assuming we answer yes to the first question, we probably would say yes to the second question. No one really likes to talk to computers. And the last thing one wants to do is to talk to an unfriendly computer or even just a computer-sounding computer. Because that's very impersonal, and we want that personal touch. Perhaps even if we know that it's it's just a mimicked touch, not a real touch. But that gets at the question, do we really want this technology? And that perhaps gets to the the speed question that, that George mentioned earlier. Well, I mean, the efficiency of the machines, obviously that's driving a lot of why why corporations would want them. Um, I think it's probably the the main reason that corporations are, are going in that direction. But does that help the consumer also? I mean, if you can get off the phone more quickly, if you can lower your wait times, that does make for a better consumer experience too. So that seems to be an ethically positive choice. But it also raises questions about elimination of jobs, which is kind of the, the main point of the article. So there's a balance here. There's a, there's, you're giving up one good maybe for another good. So, I mean, that gets into kind of another ethical idea, but we're, we're kind of balancing goods potentially. You have worked in a call center yourself in the ancient past. What kind of efficiency effect would this have if we drop from 4.6 minutes to 4.2 minutes, just to give our listeners a, an idea of what that really would mean? Yeah, so 
if you're one of the lucky people who have never worked in a call center, this may be all uh, somewhat foreign to you. But of course, if you're in a call center and you're trying to just be a worker drone answering phone calls, what is standard is that your boss is going to expect you to answer so many calls a day. And nowadays, technology exists where they can accurately track that. They can track uh, how many calls a day you make, how long each call lasts. They can sit in and monitor your calls to measure the quality of your calls. And so this, this difference, which seems small at first between 4.2 minutes per call and 4.6 minutes a call. If you're the manager of a call center, this is actually fairly significant because if you are um, saving that 0.4 minutes per call, that's gonna add up to something like 10 calls a day per the workday. And if you think now of 10 employees who are saving 10 calls a day per workday, that's 100 calls. And that's basically the equivalent of another employee, which is going to cost you probably somewhere in the area of 40 to 50 grand a year. And that's a significant saving from the perspective of the employer. Of course, if you're an employee, that might not seem so great because if you're that 10th or 11th employee, you're now that person who's out of at least that job and now having to look for some different job. And you could argue, at least from the perspective of the, the employer, as well as the customer, that you're getting better results. I mean, because you have AI that doesn't get tired, doesn't make mistakes from its norm. It might make mistakes from what, what a human might do. But it's also learning. So you have this kind of advancing employee that is getting better, doesn't need breaks, doesn't need time off, doesn't need benefits, all these other things. That seems really beneficial to the customer and to the employer. How, what kind of ethical questions does that raise about the people that are being laid off or are not getting those jobs? And I think the article mentioned 16% reduction over the next 10 years. That's significant. I mean, industries do change, though, so maybe that's just a changing industry. But what I might argue and what I'd like us maybe to talk about a bit more is this isn't just one sector. We're seeing AI affect many sectors of industry. So it's going to affect the job market in large part, um, not just in this area. So what kind of ethical questions does that raise and what does that leave? This sounds like some kind of a, a really bad transhumanism ad here or something. But where does that leave humans kind of as we move forward? Well, one of the interesting questions that, that's contained in the title of the article is the, the status of white-collar jobs. So socially, there's been this sort of perhaps implicit understanding that if blue-collar jobs are lost to technology because of, say, robots that can take the place of human workers on the manufacturing line, that's maybe okay because... Uh, people can be retrained, they can take white-collar jobs in some industry or another, and those jobs will be safe. Um, but now, with this advent of machine learning, it's not quite as clear that white-collar jobs are safe or safe in quite the same way that they used to be. So perhaps we're always going to need some humans in the call centers, but we're not going to need as many. We're always going to need law clerks, perhaps, but we're not going to need as many. And perhaps even we're still going to need computer programmers, but we're not going to need as many. 
as we hypothetically teach computers increasingly how to program themselves. But will we need professors? That's the, the question of this ethics podcast. Now, and I think this actually relates. So I'm doing a little bit of research right now on the television show Westworld, which engages the issue of AI and robotics and actually adaptation and kind of personhood in some ways. And there's a lot of questions that go with this. But the more we see these developments and how they affect humans, I think it does raise questions about whether this is a good thing. And, and that's kind of this, this general scare tactic that people always are, you know, are afraid of the robots will take over or something like that. One of the other articles uh, we looked at briefly, it's a short one on Yahoo Finance, it actually told the story of a robotic arm that could have this type of machine learning where it actually could adapt and, and kind of create physical manifestations of learning then. I think we're just kind of in the incipient stage, but that starts to move us in a direction that's a little bit more intense, let's say, because we're actually dealing with, you know, with somatic things, not just, you know, AI. So maybe say a bit more about that, George. Why, um, why would the physical learning be more intense than, say, the intellectual learning or the emotional learning? All right. So, I mean, I think it goes back to, like in our last podcast, we kind of started to talk about relationship and, and kind of relational virtues. And I think that's part of it is because when something becomes physically manifest, it it's staring you in the face in a relational way that, you know, like someone in a call center is just a voice that's far away. When there is something physical in front of you that is doing what you do, it's more of a... Uh, a visceral reaction. So I, I don't know if it actually, the ethics of the situation are more grave, but I think people perceive it that way. That's why when we start to see robots that look like humans, people start to get a little bit unnerved because it looks like us and it seems to be replacing us. So people start to, to have this visceral reaction. Now, from an intellectual standpoint, we'll talk about intellectual virtue. Maybe that's not actually such a big deal, but I think it does create this fear so what I'm, when I talk about this, what I'm really talking about is the way people react to it. Right. So this is the, the difference, the distinction between artificial intelligence and, and robotics, right? So right. when we talk about these artificial intelligence machines that are able to take calls, they're, they're in a sense disembodied. And perhaps that seems less threatening or maybe less human-like than the robot that is embodied in a very real sense, but not only embodied, but can learn new motions, unlike, say, the robot in a manufacturing plant. So if you think of the standard picture of a robot in a car factory, which is bolted to the floor and does the same repetitive motion day in and day out, that's maybe different than a robot that's more human-like and that is not only capable of a range of motion that is similar to some of what humans do, but which is able to learn in a way perhaps that humans are able to learn to to engage in new motion, say to play golf. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there, making that division between AI and robotics. And although those are tied closely together in, in many ways, especially when, I mean, AI is a part of robotics, or it, it at least is moving in that direction. Um, I think it does change our perception of it. And 
and I, I alluded to it earlier, but this idea of transhumanism, that uh, the human species may be moving in a direction that is kind of beyond what it currently is, where human, what comes to mind is like Donna Haraway and the human as cyborg, where we start to have enhancements that change who we might be as a person. I think the fear of where that path leads is kind of where some of this comes from, this, this ethical fear or, you know, it isn't just I lost my job. It's that I'm being replaced as a person. So one aspect of this, which maybe would be a good topic for another podcast, would be simply the impact on, on work that we talked about earlier. And at heart here, among other issues, is the way that we value work and the way that we value leisure. And so, you know, on one hand, the advent of robots that can do all our physical labor, maybe even our intellectual labor, that might seem like a good thing because that might mean we'd all have leisure time if somehow we could have the money to do that. And so if we all have robot servants, then we can just live a life of leisure and some would say that's a good thing. On the other hand, many would say that there is is value in work and it's in work that we find our meaning. And so if increasingly robots and artificial intelligence, machine learning, increasingly our work is being replaced by artificial creatures, this maybe is not a good thing intrinsically because we still need to work and our work needs to be meaningful. And so if we're no longer able to do meaningful work because the machines are doing it, at least on that view, that's a problem. So we have this kind of basic issue of the value of work versus the value of leisure in addition to where do we make our money? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we're kind of dealing with a kind of the individual ethical issue of the human person and work, because like diligence is traditionally a, a virtue. To be diligent, to work hard is looked at as virtuous. And of course, then there are the ethical issues that come from the job market and the economics of this thing. So I think there's a lot of avenues we can continue to discuss this. And I think we've We've probably brought up a lot of these. You can tell it's kind of a fun topic, and it's still we're still just on the horizon of where I think this is headed. But I do think it's still the questions we're going to ask here are still rooted in in ancient philosophy and in traditional philosophical topics. It all comes back to Plato. It does, and as as I tell my students, Plato is the godfather of philosophy. Um, I've added a new one this semester. I, I call Aristotle the godfather of ethics. So that's that's my, uh, I'll coin that. But uh, <laughs> but it, it does definitely come back to Plato and Aristotle more often than uh, people want to admit. So I think that brings us to the end of our fourth Ethics Lab podcast. We're starting to get on a roll here. Do you have any last words, Greg? Nope, not at all. And that says it all. So we hope you enjoyed the podcast. Continue to listen. We will have a fifth installment coming your way very soon. And we will continue to work on relevant news stories in the ethical world, as well as bring in some fun guests. And uh, hopefully you guys will learn something along the way. So until next time, stay warm for those uh, in the polar vortex. And everyone else, stay ethical.